0: Episode number 20, Lost Civilizations. It is the Drink Five uh, Retrospectacle Podcast. Excuse me, I almost thought we were on a different podcast there. Um, welcome to the show. We are going to cover Lost Civilizations tonight. I am joined, as always, uh, with Dave. I am Jason. We are your hosts here at all of the Drink Five Podcasts. Uh, like I said, tonight we'll be doing the Retrospectacle Podcast for Lost Civilizations. We've got uh, six Lost Civilizations to uh, bring to you to sort of pique your interest and maybe. Uh, inspire you to learn more about them because we're not going to be able to get too in-depth on any of them, but we'll uh, hit some interesting points on all of them.
1: I think you said podcast like six times.
0: Well, I haven't podcasted in a while. I had to get that out of my system. Alright, fair enough. Alright, I think I'm back to normal now. <laughs> so Dave, uh, speaking of normalcy, we must know, what are you drinking? Because I am drinking the thing that I always make fun of you for. So we'll get that to that in a moment because I'm sure that you're drinking a good beer over there, right?
1: Uh, I've got a PBR, Pabst Blue Ribbon. There's no reason to make fun of uh, any kind of beer, really, especially a, a PBR. It's it's a Blue Ribbon winner.
0: All right. I, I too, am drinking a PBR. <laughs> and I do chide you for drinking cheap beer on this show, but you know what? Tonight we've got some Hop Nosh from, uh, I'm not sure, from Unita. <clears throat> I think they're from uh, New Orleans or Louisiana. And then uh, we've got Citra Hero from Revolution here in Chicago. Uh, I am excited to try both of these beers. I have not had either of them. They are both citrusy IPAs, which has become my new favorite style of IPA. Maybe it's just because it's the summer; it's a particularly hot one here. But you know what? Uh, well, I it think it works it's, out well.
1: I think it's the favorite style of all of the brewers as well. So, I mean, or, or something's feeding off something else as far as what's popular right now. So, you're buying into the the mainstream, non-mainstream culture.
0: Okay. (laughs) I don't doubt it. I'm easily swayed, I'm sure. Right? Because
1: craft beer is uh, what used to be a little fledgling community and hobbyists is now like everywhere in every store. Uh, I mean, you go to gas stations and they have a a small craft beer selection.
0: now. Right. I just started drinking craft beer because I really didn't like the way that regular beer tasted. (laughs) And then here I am drinking craft beer all these years later. But hey, you know, it's good stuff. So I don't see why it would ever change at this point.
1: Well, we're trying to support the industry. (laughs) <laughs> sure,
0: I'll do it six six beers at a time.
1: Yep.
0: All right, so on to our lost civilizations. Uh, the one that we're going to start with tonight is one where I always screw up the pronunciation. So here we go. It's called Gobekli Tepe. So this is a essentially the oldest structure that humans have put together that wasn't just a little hut or something like that. Uh, so this place dates back about uh, 12,000 years or more. Uh, it's located in southeastern Turkey, and it kind of... Um, you know, when it's discovered, it's a new discovery. It's an ongoing dig. Uh, but it sort of set back the timeline for uh, where, when people sort of assume that you, you could build a, uh, a civilization, build a really complex structure, you know, run a big construction project, stuff like that. Um, so this is essentially, like I said, one of the oldest man-made structures ever discovered. It's an ongoing archaeological dig. Um, parts of it have been carbon dated to 9,000 BCE. And it's believed that it's been used for like at least 2,000 years before that. So basically, you're dating this back 7,000 years before Stonehenge in England, which is 5,000 years old and just absolutely ancient in an ancient country. Um, So this predates the beginning of the Neolithic Revolution. The Neolithic Revolution being when we discovered agriculture, when we went from being hunter-gatherers to being farmers. So this is a very, very old group of people we're talking about these people who built this structure that they call gobekli tepi now um so uh the guy in fact the guy who is you know running the excavation right now klaus schmidt he argues that building a complex structure uh you know this physical structure could lead to actually develop developing a complex society there's thoughts that either you know uh, farming developed in this region Uh, Maybe it led to building this place Or maybe building this place Led to all of these other discoveries You know, That's one of the things that nobody really knows About this place because it's so old Most of it is still underground Uh, You don't know what inspired it Or what it actually led to So I I, I was always I I learned about this place a couple years ago Um, I've always wanted to learn more about it I think it would be pretty cool to go visit there But I think it's really kind of like a, a strict Archaeological dig I'm sure that they allow tourists, but it's not like some of these other places that uh, we're talking about where, like, one of them is a state park, one of them is a huge tourist attraction. Um, this is not like that those places at all. So have you ever heard of this place, Dave? Have you ever heard of Gobekli Tepe? Uh, in passing. In, in passing? Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a new thing. Uh, they really only started digging it up uh, in the 90s. So it's still, like, it's certainly something that when we went to school uh, would have been brand new and wouldn't have been taught to us at all. Um, so, you know, it, it changes the timeline of what we were taught in school. It's, it's kind of interesting. Um, so it was a religious site. We know that because they didn't discover any of the normal, uh, evidence of domestic use, fire pits, garbage piles, clothes, you know, common cooking utensils. They didn't find any of that there because, um, you know, it's not even a permanently inhabited site. They were still a hunter gatherer society at the time. So, you know, being a hunter-gatherer, you can't just live in one place all the time. You have to move where the food is. You have to go where you can harvest things. You have to or gather things, uh, and you have to go where the animals go. You can't just stay in one place forever. Nothing is that, uh, you know, rich. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so w- what's really amazingly impressive about this place is how big it really is. So in the oldest parts of the site, uh, the deepest and oldest layer of the dig, layer three. So they have these massive T-shaped pillars. They're six meters tall. They weigh 50 tons. So they're taken from a quarry about two miles away. Now think about it. It's a 50-ton block transported two kilometers. And the only tools that they had at the time were flint stones. So stones that were a little bit harder and very sharp, but that's all they used to sort of like chip away at the block from the quarry for who knows how many years. And then you have to transport it. And who knows how they even pull that off. You know, there, There's all kinds of things that haven't really been invented yet. They didn't have the wheel when they, when they did this. So it's very interesting, very cool to see that they were able to actually build all this stuff. Um, so they think it could have taken maybe about 500 people to move these pillars. So that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people you have to feed, uh, that you have to organize. And in a society where you're not even farming, not able to really stockpile massive amounts of food it's very interesting uh and i wonder how they were actually able to pull this off and what kind of time scale would have taken to do this um so on these huge blocks and there's a whole series of these pillars and giant ones and smaller ones and they're all arranged in a pattern um but they have carvings of animals uh bulls foxes lions scorpions so some of them are animals that they would hunt some of them are animals that they're afraid of um You know, maybe they're animals that they worshipped. Who knows, really? Uh, There was a three-dimensional statue of a lion, so you know that there were like skilled craftsmen at the time too. People who, you know, you need a society to to do that. And this is this predates when everyone thought you could have a society by two or three thousand years. So you know, it's just those those staggering you know staggeringly early numbers for this place is what really kind of drew me to it. Uh, Just knowing that. You know, thousands and thousands of years before we were making art in, you know, in a large scale like this and construction, constructing large religious sites, uh, we were able to figure it out before we knew how to farm, before we knew like what a wheel was. And maybe that was the sort of thing that actually sparked civilization too, or maybe civilization sparked and created that. Um, So it's almost like the chicken or the egg for the human race, right?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about what to add here. Uh, There's a big black monolith, you know. Uh, you've seen uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. Maybe, yeah, maybe they just saw something like that and decided they had to build it.
1: So us as a as a civilization before all these tenets of civilization, such as agriculture and, um, you know, building roads and things like that, uh, you're... Th- this is the first thing that we know of, right? That people came together as a group and didn't live there, but but somehow worship things and came together as a group to uh, discuss or um, or think about things. Or uh, maybe there was a big, huge alien in the middle of it that you know they that they gave all of their uh, all of their meat and their vegetables <laughs> to. But no, the idea you're saying it seems to ring true, right? That um, <clears throat> this is at least the first example that we know of of something that was built for a purpose other than just um, living and eating.
0: Right, uh, than surviving. And so one of the biggest mysteries about this place, and it's a huge place, as many as 20 temples there, they've excavated only about 5% of the place. So it's very well preserved. And the interesting thing about it is that the place was backfilled with a massive amount of debris. So gravel, stone tools, animal bones. There's human bones thrown in there. So how but, do you
1: how do you determine that it's backfilled? And like, could there be some kind of an explosion or something like that? Or is it they were able to determine that people were actually just taking debris and throwing it in there? Or like,
0: yeah, yeah. When they're excavating the the site, they they just they discover that like it's filled essentially with all this stuff, with all of this just small bits of debris everywhere that fills it in, so that the earth doesn't take it over essentially, and, and decompose it. So it, it preserved the whole thing. And the mystery about it is that, that we don't know who did it. We don't know why they did it. We don't know if they did it on purpose or if it just happened to be like the local dump where they would throw those sort of things. Um, you don't know if someone was trying to purposely bury it and hide it forever, and those were the, that was the easiest way of filling it. Or if somebody thought ahead of time and thought, well, this place is pretty much abandoned now, but if I... Uh, if I preserve it like this, then it'll be saved, you know, in thousands and thousands of years, which would be like the most forward-thinking, um, you know, Bronze Age man ever. However, uh, it, it, th- that is what happened: is that they backfilled it, and you know, it, w- it was a couple thousand years after they had built it, uh, but that still makes the backfill date seven, eight thousand years ago, probably. Um, so it, what they did, they wound up creating a gigantic mound. It was three hundred meters across and uh eventually you know that's where gobekli tepi came from it's just potbelly in turkish so it's just this hill this nondescript hill that was purposely filled in and um you know and, and preserved it whether or not they meant to do it so do you think you know your guess is as good as anybody's really do you suppose that somebody did it on purpose to preserve it or do you think they did it to destroy it
1: well what's your theories
0: um, I'd like to think that it was to preserve it But my uh, general thought is that um, Whenever you conquer something You want to erase what came before you uh, So that you can rewrite history And I, I'm sure that that's what happened here Someone wanted to erase the, you know, This place Whether or not they were doing it for a good reason Maybe they wanted to hide it from someone But most likely I'm thinking The area was conquered by someone else And they had their own gods and rituals And they had to fill in that place And hide it forever
1: Hmm. Yeah, so I I don't know I guess the idea is that It it could have been preserved by Whatever civilization was there And built it, or if they were leaving And they didn't want someone to discover it Or mess it up at all, although um, Not wanting someone to mess something up You wouldn't just throw debris at it And, you know, like just hope that It's going to be okay later Because you're not going to unearth it, you're not going to come back and and Yeah, you'd
0: have to literally come back and Dig it up again over tens of years, like a decade at least. I'm sure it would take with primitive tools to dig that thing up. Yeah.
1: So, so I guess based on my uh, my personal insight into human nature, etc., and how things tend to turn out, as we'll probably see after going through a lot of these civilizations, that um, it was probably done more um, for for negative reasons than positive ones. Yeah. So whoever uh, ended up doing this was probably someone who wanted to erase the idea of this rather than preserve it.
0: That's what I'm thinking. So, chicken or the egg question I brought up earlier. Um, you know, I I presented the thought. You know, either this came first and then it led to agriculture, or the agriculture actually started around this area. And and it did. They, we know that agriculture itself did start in that general vicinity. But do you think that it could have been agriculture? leading to this site or this site uh, and the congregation of all the people leading to the agriculture
1: well agriculture started in, in many different places at the same time I believe so I don't know that it started in one central location and spread throughout the earth because the earth has for a long time had civilizations in different parts of it
0: That's true but this is like where we can determine it first started not that there were the not that they're the only people to think of it, um, but in this area, at least, that's where it started. You know, in 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 Africa and Asia and Europe, in the Americas, you're right; it, they did figure that out on their own, but it was later on.
1: If you're talking about agriculture as um, people discovering that you could plant this a seed of something and grow that thing, you grow
0: a lot of the same thing and use it to live in one place all the time. Instead I, of,
1: I would think that the uh, that agriculture. Uh, has been around for a lot longer than this came about. It's just that maybe it wasn't organized in a big, huge way as a civilization with big farms. Uh, probably because this could be one of the first examples, uh, as you talked earlier about some kind of uh, religious um, uh, site. Of um, I'm sure that when when people were in in very ancient civilizations and in groups and. Uh, I don't even know what you would call them, you know, just basic A hunter, tribe hunter, i suppose I hunter, don't know hunter gathered troops you know mm-hmm. uh or not troops but tribes they uh they still would have probably worshipped some very basic things like the sun or the moon, or oh, yeah you know, so there's always been that religious aspect there's been cave paintings and drawings since way before this as well mm-hmm. uh so i I suppose I would think that that agricultural ideas have been around for longer. But perhaps this is the thing that was the the first thing that aligned a lot of people at one time to the same belief system to allow you to have enough people to even think about starting some kind of organized
0: thing. Well, I mean, think about it. Worship of the sun and the moon probably leads you to agriculture because you worship the sun, you pay attention to where it is. And then you learn the equinoxes. And then you learn when the right times of year are to plant your
1: crops. Well, you're a small group of people and you, and you figure out how to make a fire and you figure out how to kill um, you know, animals. And, then, and obviously you see plants, you eat plants, you're going to figure out how to grow plants because you see the seeds that they drop. So mm-hmm. it, it probably wasn't that difficult for these uh, groups to figure out farming on a small scale. But there would be no reason for them to think of having it on a large scale if they didn't have a big group of people that you know needed all of that food
0: right right people who are going to do things with their life other than making food
1: so sure without knowing more about this I could see that this could maybe um, be the epicenter of one of the first big huge um, villages or civilizations
0: yeah okay so um, that's Gobekli Tepe make sure you guys check it out Um, you know we'll put some links up on the site and some photos and stuff Uh, so that you can see what's going on there. Uh, Check out some of the artwork. Uh, Very, very old, like, base relief carvings and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Um, And and feel free to uh, chat if you're listening to us right now. Uh, You can join us in the chat room and and add your comments in. We have a number of uh, lost civilizations to discuss today. And if you haven't heard any of the Drink 5 Retro Spectacle podcasts in the past, you can find them on our website at drink5.com and follow along with us as we go forward. Um, at iTunes under Drink5 Network or uh, also on Stitcher and several other places. Just search for Drink5, one word. We are the only entity that is named Drink5, so it shouldn't be too hard for you to get there. Uh, and thanks, Jason. Again, he was talking about Gobekli Tepli, which is hard to say one time fast, uh, much less three. But it's an interesting topic that I also saw a little documentary about. And like he said, it just came about in the 90s, so it's... it's stuff is kind of new and what you'll hear as we're discussing some of these things is that in the 2000s and even in fact in the last couple of years we've still discovered a lot of things about these civilizations that we hadn't previously known and a lot of the theories that people were coming up with are now sort of coming into fruition or being able to be tested mm-hmm. and I'll talk about one of those now um, when we talk about Rapa Nui which is Easter Island. All right, so Easter Island is a, a small little island in the South Pacific. It's about halfway through between Chile and Tahiti and 1,260 miles away from the closest other inhabited island. Well, interesting thing about this is that it was basically formed completely full from volcanic eruptions, which makes it one of the youngest inhabited pieces of land on the earth because it wasn't already a pre-existing uh, land mass. Um, like a lot of islands are or uh, created way way back in history, but something that was much more young and So it
0: is is it like as old as Hawaii or something?
1: Well, I don't have the exact carbon dating I can look that up, but okay, it's it's not well It's got to be younger than that since it's a younger island um, but basically it it doesn't have the established coral formations for example that you would normally have from a large piece or even a small piece of, of land that was established for a long period of time Which means that if you look at Easter Island and and the way that it's created, then basically what's happened is the water has rushed up against it. And without the coral formations, it's just cut right into the shoreline, creating a whole bunch of cliffs around all the edges. And it's interesting because there's only a couple spots on the entire island, if you go around the the shoreline, where there's a beach or a place that you could land. Most Mm -hmm. of it is kind of sheer cliff faces and, and sharp black volcanic rock. So it's probably not a place that would look very uh, welcoming, depending on what angle you're coming in at it. Um, It's
0: true. However, being in the middle of nowhere, you'd still try to land there.
1: Yeah. So uh, archaeologists have determined that seafaring Polynesians discovered the island around 300 to 400 CE. And since we're talking about dates, um, I think I should bring up, just for people that haven't been uh, into the circle for a long time, or perhaps uh, went to school a, a while ago and didn't get the memo. Uh, BC and AD have been replaced by BCE Yay. and CE. Um, um, so, you... so what that means basically is that it's taking away the religious element and just making it common era, um, which I think is a good thing, I guess. Uh, but, but just to let you guys know, if I do say AD or something later, I guess what that really
0: means we'll just drink for that is CE. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I did find an answer to my question. Um, the, uh, the youngest islands on Easter Island are 750,000 years old. Uh, the most recent eruptions were about 100,000 years ago. Hawaii's oldest islands are 750,000 years old. So, like you said, geologically speaking, these things are infants.
1: Right. Um, so, this, uh, basically the Polynesians that discovered this, uh, his name was uh, Hotu Matua, which is, according to legend, uh, from the, the people that, uh, that still live there, uh, for example, and I'll get into that later. But he landed at Anakina, which is a white sand beach on the coastline. And like I said, to find a, like a pristine white sand beach, which is described as beautiful in everything that I've seen, uh, among this island of sheer cliff faces is pretty amazing. And so he landed there with many canoes, with his extended family and, and you know maybe some friends and relatives <laughs> um, outside of that. But uh, he landed there because they were they were searching for somewhere else to live, and we're not really sure why that is. Um, but he basically began to construct a village there, and the villages thrived for many years and were able to grow crops in the nutrient-rich soil, and, and we'll talk about all of that. But back in, in 1722, a Dutch explorer first set foot on the island. He named it uh, Isla de Pascua, or Pascua, and which that means Easter Island. Uh, because he actually discovered it on Easter Sunday, which is not a very exciting way to come up with the name, but...
0: Of an epic place, yeah.
1: You know, sometimes sometimes history is, is very blunt, so... <laughs> um, unfortunately, in an all-too-common story, uh, the Peruvian slave traders later came in and took away a whole bunch of the island's inhabitants and sold them into slavery, and those who weren't killed as a result of that um, were also killed from diseases from European missionaries. The missionaries also took steps to wipe out the pagan culture on the island, destroying sculptures and artifacts and tablets. And they had a written language um, called Rongo Rongo. And this was a pictorial language. And what was unique about it, and I'll include a link later on the story in Drink 5 if you guys are interested, um, from this website called damninteresting.com, which, by the way, is, is pretty damn interesting. Um, hmm. and, and The, the name th- doesn't lie. The interesting thing about the language is that none of the surrounding areas at that time... Um, had written languages, um, at least to this extent. So it's it's something that was developed on this island, we think. And it was developed to a point where um, it's very advanced. And there are still some remaining tablets to this day written in Rongo Rongo from, from this uh, island. But unfortunately, there is no one left from the original lineage that has any information or knowledge about how to read the language. So it's it's officially a dead
0: language. Oh, we need a Rosetta Stone for it.
1: Yeah. I said maybe rosettastone.com has a Rongo Rongo... Uh, a Rapa Nui Stone. ...plug-in we can put in there. Um, but it's sad because it's a, it's a cool pictorial language, and you'd think that, um, that there'd be something we could do to recover or figure this out. Um, there have been... Uh, scientists and linguists for for many, many years who have been trying to study these tablets and figure them out to to decipher what the history of this actually could have been. So we're just piecing together things. And so now you know the basic history. So what what most people think of when they picture Easter Island are these statues, right, which are called the Moai, and these giant head statues. They're these huge um, sort of narrow heads with features that jut out of them, and then kind of these thin bodies that, that are beneath them. And they're, um, they're basically put up on the coastlines on, um, on, these, on these little platforms. Um, and I'll tell you more about those in a little bit. But they're carved out of soft volcanic rock. And they're, they've carved for years out of like a little bit harder volcanic stone. And this is what's called volcanic tuff. Okay, and they take the stone and they chip away at it and they, and they make these uh, interesting sculptures and it takes them a very, very long time to do.
0: It's going to be so hard working with that stuff because it's so sharp right. and like uneven.
1: So then they, they transport them to these uh, Ahu, which are ceremonial platforms that were built to host a big group of them. So basically what we think is this island began to host um, lots of these different individual clans. Okay. And the, all these clans had individual Ahu, which are these uh, ceremonial platforms. And then they made their own kinds of moai uh, to signify their, their past leaders and chiefs and things like that. And they would decorate them, and then they would move them 14 or 15 miles away in some cases, all the way to the coastline. And these are things that are huge and very heavy. And so the, one of the big mysteries of this place was how were they able to move these giant rock statues from one part of the island where they actually uh, cast them, you know, out of volcanic rock to the coastline. And NOVA, a couple years ago, sponsored and filmed an experiment to try and replicate the transportation of the big statues. And so they were actually successful at it. So what they do is, is they would originally go up in, the, in like the uh, mountains that were sort of formed and they would find an area where they could carve one of these statues. Then they would break down the statue and transport it down on tree logs and then what we think happened was that they would take the the moai and and position it horizontally on top of two big logs and then roll the whole unit along two other logs that were placed perpendicular to it or more so then they're basically just rolling this big log structure um, and it takes a lot of people so what nova was able to do is get a big group of people which was approximately 70 in total um, and they were able to move something from the farthest reach of the island to the coast in about five days, so they think that this is probably the most accurate way that this could actually be done, yeah, which is interesting that like you know we spend our time trying to figure out how people did this stuff that is so primal
0: the old way you know it 's cool uh, on uh, on another one of the sites I was reading about they did similar tests where they got guys together in the jungle and they Went about carving the limestone the old-fashioned way and figuring out how to do it all. Yeah, and it worked. They they did it, but just the scale to do it on. How many of those uh, the the heads are there on the island?
1: So um, so eventually, uh, when the civilization reached its peak, there were more than a thousand of them all around the coastline, and they were all a little bit different in these different ahus um, that were based on all the different clans and. Uh, what's interesting about that is that it, it, they are, are sort of positing, right, that you you could have pulled up on a boat or something to this island and basically seen the entire coastline just all heads, which is, <laughs> which is a rather menacing uh, place to pull up to. You're like, yeah. I'm, maybe I should go to the next island I, I 1,200 so. miles away, right? but it's probably a better option for me <laughs> in my head. Um, anyway... Uh, so, at that point, the the island began to run out of resources is one of the big theories. It, deforestation, which you'll find as sort of a common theme of some of these civilizations when you ask, where did they go? Because these people are just figuring out how to take the resources around them and use them to their advantage. But maybe they don't realize that when they get rid of all the resources, there's no way to get more of them fast enough to maintain what they're doing, right? So. You had to build the houses and move all the statues and and it sort of took its toll on everything. So one theory is a huge conflict where these uh, clans that were previously living in peace uh, began to war with each other and there I guess is is some evidence of cannibalism on the bones um, that they found from archaeological expeditions and and Another thing you find from these old civilizations is that sometimes things really reverted to more primal um, uh, activities faster than maybe a modern civilization would.
0: i hope I hope the modern civilizations wouldn't revert to that stuff.
1: Well. So without any wood, the villagers couldn't build boats to escape, and all of the island's population was erased basically. Not all of it, but but most of it where some people are saying that eventually it got down to around 700, 750 people. When they started to get those uh, visitors again from Europe, that's, that's about the population they got down to. Uh, there was another scenario that was posed recently um, within the last 10 years by a couple of guys from the University of Hawaii. And uh, they, they said that the Polynesian settlers may have come in with some rat stowaways in their canoes. And because there weren't any natural predators for the rats, they multiplied and multiplied. Um, and then they ate all of the pollen roots and the trees and the forest plants, and they just became the the like pervasive species on the island. And even though the islanders then may not have had regular food, they could still eat the rats, and they still could have survived through the you know um, basically the uh, the bad Maybe. stuff that happened. But
0: if the rats precipitated the like loss of all the trees. Then they, they not, not nearly as many people can live on the island with no trees, and that would then breed conflict. It's probably a little both.
1: Well, certainly possible. And, and they they said that examining the ancient garbage piles on Easter Island, which and everyone knows that's the best way to find out about a civilization, is examining. See what their garbage is. Their yeah, garbage. They said about four
0: archaeologists will be digging up all of our garbage.
1: They said about sixty percent of the bones were from introduced rats, so something that you know uh, a rat species that was not native to the island, which makes sense. Uh, obviously they brought it with them whether or not they did it on purpose or they started to take over there because they didn't have predators is another thing um, Again, I have a website here if you guys are interested to hear more about it and something big to what you were saying um, If you don't have trees you have you have some issues right for many reasons, but they also found evidence uh, Of a lot of these um, interesting gardens that were constructed and they were made out of Rocks and they would split rocks so that the minerals could come out into the soil and then they would Put up the rocks like uh, scattered all throughout this area, so that it would break up the wind, so that they could still farm uh, in in these little areas. Huh. So it was kind of interesting. Smart. Um, so I, do you think that the villagers maybe didn't realize what was happening to resources on the island? And it's a bigger question uh, for all of these civilizations that we talk about that are using great amounts of wood or any other kind of resource in a small area. Um, do you think that they had an idea of what would happen when they didn't have any
0: more? I'm sure that they didn't think it would go as bad as it seems to have because it seems to have gotten pretty grim there, but there's got to be some sort of uh knowledge in like old civilizations, old cultures that you know we we always think of it as being a little romanticized and they knew how to live off the land and be in harmony with nature but as humans, we've always basically like used up all the resources we can in one area and then moved on. Sure. That's the basic essence of hunter-gatherer, all the way till well, let's make our own resources and farm it all. Um, I'm sure that they know that at some point their time is limited. Now, the other problem with humans is that the, the limited time is on a scale much longer than one person's lifetime. So sometimes people forget that stuff. And I think it's easy to forget. And I think that Easter Island is a classic example of everyone sort of forgetting what limited resources can do to you uh, and seeing the worst of the consequences.
1: So uh, one more interesting thing about this uh, particular civilization is that after the Moai carving era, as we should call it, right? Yeah. Um, whatever happened to them? Whether it have been you know uh, death and destruction via wars, etc or if it was um, just merely that they no longer had resources and they died out sort of naturally, um, or a combination of both, like you mentioned. Um, when, when all that happened, the, the people that were left on the island, they changed entirely, gave up sort of their old gods and belief systems, and became what's what we call the Birdman Cult. Have you heard of this?
0: The Birdman Cult? It did catch my eye as I was browsing the wiki page.
1: So it's interesting. So uh, It's just a really cool thing. Every year, uh, what would happen is that there'd be a competition to, uh, decide who would lead the, the island. And the process was simple. And basically one elder would make a bid for leadership and choose a champion, um, to honor the God. The God was called Makemake, who is a deity of fertility. And so what happened was the chosen ones of the Birdman cult, like say the five elders said, I want to be in power. They would each choose a champion. Those champions would then dive down the cliffs, the sheer cliffs uh, of a village that was located nearby, um, and then they would swim to a little, uh, a little inlet, and then they would wait for, like, um, for an egg. So the first egg of the season, swim all the way back with the egg, and climb you know, all the way back up uh, the cliffs, et cetera, and, and show up with the egg unharmed. And then that elder would be considered the supreme ruler.
0: It's as good a way as any, right?
1: And apparently they had to shave <laughs> it's their... It's not easy. They had to shave their head and grow their nails out to become more bird-like.
0: Okay. <laughs> Things got a little kooky it, it, towards the end there.
1: Well, and so this is an example of a civilization that was almost like driven down to nothing. Um, and, and regardless of what happened to them, they turned into bird people.
0: It sounds like, you know, Polynesian Mad Max.
1: Yep, that's what it was. <laughs> and then, unfortunately, they were all split up as, you know, uh, put into the slave trade or, or killed from diseases from missionaries.
0: Yep, the the continental people always fuck things up for the islanders.
1: So, um, so we didn't used to know as much as we do now, and this is considered to be among some uh, anthropologists, etc., to be somewhat of a solved mystery, although all of these are going to be a little bit difficult uh, because there's going to be things that that we can't uh, we can't ultimately find the, the history to. Right,
0: I don't think any of these civilizations have like books that we can read about them because then they're not considered lost really. Yeah. Like we don't consider Rome necessarily lost because we know so much about it. We have so much proof of what happened
1: there. Well, it certainly wouldn't be written in Rongo Rongo.
0: No, on tablets. Well, it might be on some tablets. Yeah. Okay. Um next one up, uh we're going to talk about one that's very close to home in fact. Uh, so Cahokia Cahokia is uh, Cahokia Today known as Cahokia Mound State Historic Site um, It's in uh, Southern Illinois It's right outside of St. Louis um, It's about 3.5 square miles uh, Big And it contains 80 of these mounds uh, The original mounds that were built uh, By these Cahokia Well they weren't Cahokia people um, They were Mississippian um, So it Cahokia is essentially the, the largest pre-Columbian city of north, north of Mexico. Obviously, in Mexico, there were several very large cities, in South America as well, but north of there, there, were, there had been nothing uh, except for this place, Cahokia, which at its peak could have supported as many as 40,000 people. Like the, the population estimates range between like ten and 40,000, but there's some strong evidence that it could be up to 40,000 people, which is a lot of people when you're talking about the 13th century. That's probably more than they had in London, in a lot of places in Europe. Um, Only a few places in Asia were probably higher than that. Um, So, you know, today it is preserved. It is uh, one of eight cultural world heritage sites in the United States. Um, So we don't have too many of these, really. uh, And this is maybe one of the biggest, one of the uh, least well-known. I mean, we live in the state of Illinois, and I bet you that most of the people we know don't even know about this place. Granted, it is five hours away from us, but it is in our state, and it, it, it's, like, the oldest city in the United States until Philadelphia, mm-hmm. which is a, a pretty fun stat that I had found. Um, so, originally, the site was about six square miles big. Uh, it had 120 human-made earthen mounds. Now, these mounds were uh, all kinds of different sizes, all kinds of different shapes. Some of them are rounded. Some of them are, like, plateaus. Some of them are kind of, like, pyramids. Um All kinds of different stuff. But uh, unfortunately for us, I guess, uh, the original occupants didn't have any written language. So everything about the place is lost to time, including, in fact, its name. We don't know what the original name was. We don't know what the original people called themselves. Cahokia is the name that is attributed to the tribe that was living there when the French explorers arrived in the 1600s. So hundreds of years after uh, the original inhabitants that built the place had left, um, nobody had really lived there for a while. And then at the time, these Cahokia people were living there, and that's how the name stuck. So just like all the other stuff we were talking about, things are misnamed or just named at random, really, for the most part. Or the name is significant in the day, and then when you you think about the long history of something, it is totally inappropriate. (laughs) But we don't have a real name for this anyways. Sure. So, despite lack of writing of any sort, not even, like, tablets or anything like that, like they had on Easter Island, um, it's clear that this was an elaborately planned community. So, they built these giant mounds, they had burials, they even had a woodhenge, which is, not to be confused with Stonehenge or other woodhenges in England, we had our very own woodhenge, a kind of circle of posts, which were, uh, you know, placed in such a way that it would note the equinoxes and the solstices and other things like that and obviously were used in ceremonies and uh you know you can use information like that just to figure out when you're supposed to farm and stuff like that and now we are of course uh in the area of in the era of farming for all of these people uh for for a very long time at this point corn has become a huge crop um and it that along with soybeans and squash are basically you know the the what do they call the holy trinity or something like that the three things that all the people of this area grow and do it well and it's a very good area for it Uh, it's a very good time of the climate it's um kind of a warm or a cooler period i forget what it was if it was warmer or cooler but i know that the climate uh was different at that time which made it more conducive to farming all over all over the place stuff like that um So, uh, they actually did rebuild the Woodhenge, because what they did, they found the post holes in the ground. You know, we we talk about making holes in the ground uh, to play Beersby. Imagine these holes stay in the ground for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, it's a good thing. Maybe ancient, uh, or not ancient, but future archaeologists will be able to figure out the game of Beersby from the holes in the ground that
1: we leave. Yes, I doubt it.
0: (laughs) Well, they'll, they'll see that the ground has been trampled on either side. Um... So anyways, um, the, the main features of this site are the mounds, obviously. Uh, it would have taken thousands of workers decades to complete this. So the workers moved an estimated 55 million cubic feet of earth in woven baskets, using essentially primitive tools. Being in North America, they didn't really have any metal tools, they didn't forge anything, um, you know, they, they didn't have too much. I think that there was some copper tools, but... I doubt that they had, like, large shovels and things like that. Just everything would have been made out of wood. Um, and and it would be hard to work the wood in the first place. So um, the largest feature is called Monk's Mound. It's 100 feet high, almost 1,000 feet long, 750 feet wide. So it's roughly the same size as it's at its base as the Great Pyramid of Giza. So, you know, the giant pyramid in Egypt that everyone looks at is, like, one of the tall ancient Wonders of the World. This wasn't as tall as it, but it was almost the same size, and it was done with probably a much smaller labor force and built out of earth instead of stone. Um, so it's it, it probably started as a small mound and was a string of construction projects that could have spanned, you know, centuries. Uh, and then at the top of it, they built a 5,000 square foot building, which could have been up to 50 feet tall. So this was a proper city. There were plazas, there's a huge uh, open air plaza where they, um, where they played sports and, you know, gathered for obviously religion and whatever, whatever you need to gather for in a large group of people, all kinds of fun things, weddings, who knows. Um, so it was kind of the centerpiece of the city was this monk's mound this huge place with this huge building on top. It's kind of like situated so that you can see everything. Cause, down in this, uh, you're essentially down in the Mississippi River Valley, right where the Missouri River comes in. It's all very, very flat. It's all very rich soil. It's a very nice place, Um, you know, and and if you build a mound that's 100 feet high, you're gonna be able to see everything around you. And that's, you know, that's probably one of the reasons why they built it. However, um, they weren't the greatest engineers. They were pretty good, Uh, but the mounds suffer from slumping. Um, Basically, it's all dirt still, and it's not like they can pack it with heavy machinery and stuff like that like we can do now so it's very subject to erosion heavy rains would cause it to sink being next to the mississippi river it would flood Um, so there were uh, problems like that and it's one of the reasons why the site was finally abandoned Um, so another one of the mounds on the sites was called you know just mound 72 obviously you can't come up with a name for everything Um, but this mound contained the remnant remains of 272 sacrificial victims. So it's the largest number of sacrificial victims that they've found in these digs north of Mexico. So that was a thing that was kind of considered exclusive to maybe the Aztecs. Uh, However, uh, it's really not. It's a common theme throughout the Americas, I think, at that time. And this shows that, you know, they practiced it here. Maybe they did it on top in that giant-ass building. Um, So they also found in the mound... Two men that were buried with uh, two hundred or twenty thousand shell beads, and they were put in the shape of a falcon. So, you know, they also buried very important people. And I do believe that that guy is called the Birdman.
1: Well, there's a lot of birdmen in there,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, the, the, the most, Birdman burial.
1: The most famous Birdman being um, uh, Harvey, slighted constantly for any uh, major awards in Hollywood.
0: <laughs> um. So anyways, uh, the population of the site, this is one of the mysteries, is how it got so big so quickly and how it went away so quickly, really.
1: That's Michael Keaton, if anybody didn't know what
0: I was talking about. <laughs> so uh, the population of the site really expanded from about 1050 CE for a few hundred years, peaking you know, about 200 years later. Um, and, and it's not clear why it became so popular. There weren't other very large cities anywhere in the area. Um, and it's also equally unclear as to why it declines so rapidly. There's, there's many theories just like other things. Obviously, some things are a little more concrete than others. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's several basic human things, right? The city got too crowded. You can't have a city of 40,000 people in a place like that uh, where the Mississippi River floods every 100 years. Um, you know, it's going to cause large problems. It's unhealthy, really, before modern sanitation to live in cities at large. Um, there's no sanitary systems in place. There's no incoming fresh water outgoing sewage. It all gets kind of mixed together. Uh, they certainly didn't know back then that that was bad for the water. They didn't really realize that until like the 1800s. Um, so despite it peaking, really, in the 13th century, the site was all but abandoned uh, before Christopher Columbus even set sail on his first voyage. So... This was like a flash-in-the-pan flash civilization that still built these giant things that endure today. And they're very close to us. And I'm going to go visit it sometime because of, of all the places we're talking about, that's the by far the easiest one to get to. Um, so I want to know, Dave, what do you think, uh, how would the settlement of America have changed if there was like this big city, if it had lasted right when the Europeans arrived, if there was a city of like 40,000 people? Like, uh, how do you think things would have been different?
1: Uh, well, as you mentioned, if you have a, a large city that big without any kind of way for, for things to, um, for things to work out in a modern sense, uh, sanitarially, et cetera, like, I don't, I don't see how it could survive a long period of time, but, uh, saying it did, and it ended up being this large city that was still there when Columbus landed and the settlers came out and whatever, um, I imagine what would have happened is that we would have uh, um, established some kind of borders, and that they would have still had that land area.
0: Interesting, because
1: it was it was not a difficult thing for um, the uh, for the European uh, colonial not colonial European settlers to come in and and take care of uh, the existence of some smaller groups of people.
0: That's true but, I mean but if there was a forty 000... thousand some SARS blankets
1: sure but if there's a forty thousand you know big town like I, I think they could the kind of easily um, repel any uh, expanses and that would have made us back off for a little bit probably. yeah I mean
0: they they the place was definitely kind of fortified uh, they had a wall built around it for a while that they kept up for at least a century
1: yeah it's just um, it was probably too. Too big, too soon for uh, for them. Unfortunately, yes,
0: yes. It kind of seems like one of those things. Like they all, you know, had a really good time getting together and hanging out. But like any party, you need to go home at some point.
1: Yeah, nobody went home.
0: So it's the original like house party. Let's stay there. In the United
1: States. It's closing time, guys.
0: So I don't know. I, one of the things I was thinking of when I wrote that question was that maybe, um, like the the native Aboriginal culture would culture and blood would have been mixed. In with the uh, modern culture a little bit more, kind of like in Mexico, where a lot of the uh, Indians there, you know, they. Uh,
1: the Native Americans? Th-
0: the Native Mexicans.
1: Mexico is a part of America. The
0: Aztecs, really. <laughs> uh, they mixed, you know, with the uh, Spanish a lot more than, you know, any of the other countries. Well, anything north of them, anyways. Uh, so I think that that might have happened more here, and that would have been. A very different country that we would live in today.
1: Sure. There would be a stronger presence because there would just be more of them. They wouldn't have all been dispersed and, and killed.
0: Yep. So what do you think is the more interesting mystery? Why the city population exploded or why it was abandoned 300 years later? Although that
1: said, with you know the expanse of like, malaria and smallpox and stuff, then maybe a tighter and closer community could have just been destroyed more easily.
0: Uh, that certainly could be the case.
1: Um, I, I think it's probably why there was a population explosion because it was probably one of the biggest cities of that time period, unless you're talking about some places in Asia. Um, but they just hadn't discovered a way to to ha- have a you know, a city that large. But why it was an aban- why it was abandoned seems pretty obvious whether it be they don't have the resources anymore, like a lot of these places, or because there was some kind of a conflict or simply because they weren't able to handle, the uh you know the the structure and the um organization and hierarchy of a city i mean chicago can't handle it so <laughs> uh, uh, granted it's a much bigger city but uh if if we already have cities that are failing now with modern infrastructure then then why would a uh, a big city back then be able to survive when they don't even have plumbing
0: yeah yeah plumbing is pretty good stuff <laughs> i got to say
1: it could have been bad back then yeah I can see the advantages definitely of of living in a smaller town um, when no one knows how to cure anything. Or...
0: <laughs> Better to be isolated. Yeah. see is your point.
1: You're like, oh, I heard way to the northwest there's a there's a crazy disease where everyone turns blue and then black and then dies. You're like, well, let's, we're going to go let's southeast. Let's not go there. Southeast. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds like the good way to go. Okay, well, let's move on to the next one. Uh, and that's the Anasazi. And so, in the southwest of what is now North America, uh, there was an ancient people called the Anasazi, and they once lived there and flourished in the desert canyons. Uh, we're talking about, when we say the southwest, like the Four Corners. Um, so, by. Uh, uh, what are the Four Corners? Me? Oh, come on now. <laughs> Utah? I've been there.
0: Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona.
1: Have you been to the uh, Four Corners? No, I haven't. Yeah, I've been to where it meets, and there's like this little area, and you're like, okay, great, it's We've, the Four Corners. We sort
0: of flew over it a little bit when we were in Vegas. Well, I there's a little actual
1: monument where there's like a sign, and you can go in it and be like, now I'm in all four states at the same time. But it's
0: not actually there. It's like, it's just offset. Whatever. None of it that matters <laughs> anyway.
1: <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's where they basically lived was that area. Yeah. The Navajo people... Um, They knew them back then and they they actually named them the Anasazi which means ancient strangers or ancient ones and some people believe that uh, The Navajo tribe based on that naming convention actually thought the Anasazi to be from outer space or from somewhere far away or from somewhere um, That was just not uh, You know what they're familiar with like they they would see pictorials and and pictures and paintings uh, that the Navajo people made of this other tribe Um, And they would paint them in such a a way, in such a light, that it made them seem like they were, like, elder... uh, They they were just... They were just advanced. They were looked at as an advanced society, yeah, exactly. So, this era, they were first, I guess, um, uh, proposed, not proposed, but uh, uh, supposed to be... Coming around around twelve hundred b c e to the thirteenth century uh, c e which is when the Anasazi um, were disappeared um, so
0: that's a that 's a good long chunk that 's two thousand years
1: yeah and well, so it 's
0: twenty six hundred years 25.
1: Dur- during this time, like a lot of similar um, uh, similar tribes or civilizations they had very highly um, uh, developed architecture religion writing art science. They built an observatory they built a calendar system and a road system so they were they were incredibly uh, a complex and intelligent society with um, a whole bunch of infrastructure and like we were talking about before Um, but at the pinnacle of the civilization when they were at their highest point from what we can tell which again was 13th century CE they just simply disappeared So, later in their existence, and we're trying to figure out now, why is that, right? Why did did they just go away if they were this thing that was a a stronghold in this era? Uh, One of the more advanced and uh, well-set-up and well-prepared societies, certainly, that lived in that area of North America. Um, They, towards the end of their civilization, started building their houses into hillsides and cliffs. Um, Some thought that the way that they did this was through a... uh, uh, a timber system, or uh, some kind of a rope system, or or something like that, and they uh, basically created a place for them to live that was advantageous for defense and protection against the elements, or maybe warring tribes. And they also made these giant complexes that were uh, as many as five stories tall and contained up to eight hundred rooms. Um, so, so how did this great and huge and interesting civilization just disappear? Well. There's a number of theories, so let's talk about them. So, one is drought, and that happened a lot uh, back then, and and it's weird, uh, kind of, that that this sort of thing doesn't happen as much now, at least not that I'm aware of, and it's very strange, isn't it? Um, Back then, uh, there was a period of time in the 1100s where there was a... or the 1000s, I don't know what you'd call that. The 1000s? (laughs) The 11th century? Well... Yeah, I'll just refer to it as its opposite name, sure. uh, alternate name. So in the uh, 11th century and the 12th century, there were droughts um, that this civilization specifically survived. But there was one that I guess could have been a period of virtually no rain for up to 23 years, between 1276 and 1299 CE. That is a really long time for there to be no rain, and I think at that point anyone would just kind of pick up and move somewhere.
0: Well, that's exactly what happened in the Dust Bowl. I mean, there was tons of farmers and homesteaders all over the West and everywhere. And they just picked up and moved to the big cities, and it totally changed, you know, the culture and the civilization.
1: Right, but but there's no evidence of this particular tribe having moved somewhere else or becoming part of another tribe. Or
0: They would have mostly had to assimilate and just kind of disappeared then.
1: Sure. I mean, like I said, there's a lot of theories. So the Mayans are another tribe who uh, some consider to be a lost civilization because they sort of disappeared in the same way. After making this big and advanced civilization, the Mayans kind of phased out. And a lot of people think that's uh, to what Jason said. Um, It's because they just moved on and integrated into other societies and they had to leave where they were for some reason. Um, There is a... um, Apparently, something that could have happened that was really bad around 1200 AD, according to one archaeologist from the University of Colorado, um, there were a lot of uh, cave paintings from that area that were d- uh, dated to around that time that have big, huge lights in the sky and things like that. So they were thinking some kind of uh, of like uh, UFO, me- meteor, or asteroid, or, UFO. or like a supernova or something that aliens. <laughs> <laughs> If it's you, aliens, right? They were aliens
0: much, to, to begin with, I thought.
1: You were watching too much Discovery Channel.
0: I just thought you said that they were aliens.
1: No, I said that the, the novel. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> Ancient strangers is a weird way to refer to someone, but I, I never said they were aliens. Um, so, so yeah, so he says that maybe something really bad happened to them, and, and there are a lot of people who are thinking that because they're painting these pictures of big lights and things like that they're coming from the sky... That maybe there was some kind of uh, astronomical event that uh, caused them to freak out or, or run away or get scared or uh, maybe solar has...
0: eclipses really fuck with people.
1: Yeah, what they would know if there was a solar eclipse around that time, wouldn't they? From like other
0: yeah, uh... you can tell when there were solar eclipses. Yeah, but so... we don't think of them necessarily as having set off an entire civilization, but it certainly might have. What's more
1: interesting to me is the possibilities of, and I talked about this earlier, of of the violence uh, ends to the civilizations because I am just interested in why that would be the case. So there was a a massacre at Castle Rock around that same time. And Castle Rock is this uh, Pueblo, like it's a big, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Like a big canyon mountain thing in the area. And uh, there was a a huge um, excavation that was done At that area, and they found all these dead bodies with, again, signs of scalping, decapitation, face-removing, and cannibalism. That happens a lot. Common
0: theme here tonight.
1: But you're wondering if, like, if maybe there's a couple roving tribes of these uh, cannibal Mad Max people that are just doing crazy things. (laughs) Or if uh, these civilizations are turning inward with the strife and turmoil and religious fervor and whatever, uh, and that's what's causing this. I'm not really sure
0: i think it's I think it's more of the latter. I think it's mostly internal things get crazy in your area. Uh, why they didn't want to leave it, Maybe may the more uh more of a question like unlike at Easter Island where you you don't have a choice, there's no more trees so you can't build a boat and you can't leave the island here you could have just walked away instead of like resorting to cannibalism
1: <laughs> yes um. So it, it, makes it, it, makes it, think, it makes you think a little bit more that, that maybe the reason they were building these things into the side of hills, et cetera, is because they were getting under attack or they were fearing for something. Um, so it's difficult to determine what actually the reason was. Another uh, alternative or possibility is that the Pueblo people, which ended up living after the Anasazi people in the same area, perhaps uh, some of the civilization was just assimilated into them, um, the thing about that particular tribe, the Pueblo people, is that they keep their history very close to the chest and still haven't really given up a lot of the secrets um, and origin stories that they have. So
0: you think maybe they know what happened?
1: Yeah, possibly. I mean, uh, but at this they point...
0: They were sworn to secrecy by the aliens.
1: Well, why do you keep talking about aliens? <laughs> it, it makes sense.
0: No, it doesn't make sense.
1: But at this point, um, it it's... <laughs> I don't know if you have like some kind of alien problem over there. You've been, you've been watching Ancient Aliens.
0: No, you brought up aliens at the very beginning. Did I? I think so. Oh, I'm oh. sure
1: you were joking. It's aliens.
0: You're, you said they were alien to them or something like that.
1: Yes. Well, obviously, all these lost civilizations were just flown up into space, where they now are like living in a lunar base uh, or something on the dark yeah. side of the moon.
0: This all happened a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And
1: Sid Barrett wrote all about it, probably. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, the the Pueblo people or other people, they could know some secrets, but the problem is now the, the information that even if it was valid at some point has just played this big long game of telephone to where even if there is information that scientists don't have that someone else does, it's just going to be gobbledygook. Uh,
0: yeah. There's,
1: mean, there's no way a story goes from 1300 BC to, you know, 2017 intact. It's true. There's probably aliens in it.
0: Well, there definitely would be aliens in it by now. <laughs> Any good game of uh, telephone will include aliens. That's right. Alrighty, so uh, we will move on to uh, one of the more interesting ones that I was reading about. So, uh, a place called Angkor Wat, which is the largest religious monument in the world. So, it's in Cambodia in Southeast Asia. Uh, the site itself, just Angkor Wat, covers 402 acres. So it was constructed for the Khmer Empire, K-H-M-E-R, I believe it's Khmer, uh, in the 12th century as a Hindu temple. Um, but, like, right away almost, it sort of it transformed into a Buddhist temple instead. Um, which, uh, I don't know, I, I kind of think of that uh, akin to a more peaceful version of things in uh, the Middle East transferring from, like, an old Christian site to a Muslim site, or something like that. Um, So anyways, back to Angkor Wat. Um, This place really rivals anything that they built in ancient Greece, in Rome, or anything like that. It is just enormous and it is beautiful and it's incredibly intricate. Uh, So the temple itself is surrounded by a moat, a perfectly square moat, or probably rectangular, uh, that is 620 feet wide. Um, We're talking a serious moat here. It essentially makes like a huge lake that that rings the whole site. Like a um, moat? It, it is a moat, it, but it's a gigantic moat. It's 620 feet wide.
1: Well, that was obviously created by aliens.
0: I don't know, dude. You look at this place, I mean...
1: No, that's it's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty cool.
0: It's freaking huge. Okay, um, so what, what's smart about it, really, is that it keeps the jungle from taking over because it is in the middle of the jungle. Um, so it, it is unusual compared to similar sites in the area because it was never totally abandoned. Um, it was neglected after the 16th century, and it wasn't really restored until the 20th century. Um, and it, the way it looks today was all done, you know, in restorative work. Most of the stuff has been looted from there. A lot of the statues uh, taken, almost everything was taken uh, by looters over the, over the ages. Um, but today it still looks just freaking amazing. Um, so it is part of the World Heritage Center known as Angkor, which is 400 square kilometers. and encompasses a lot of the capitals that they had in the Khmer Empire, which ruled the whole area from the 19th to the 14th century. So that's the people who built this place. And there's a bunch of other places around there that look like this. Some of them, uh, they've left where uh, the jungle is sort of reclaiming it and tearing it apart. Kind of looks like an Indiana Jones movie. Um, and there's like trees that are pulling apart rocks very slowly by grinding the roots between them and stuff like that and they just leave the places like that because that's sort of you know how it looks now but Angkor Wat they they cleaned the whole thing up and now it's just a a really nice place that you can go and um, it's still a religious place it's it's always been used as a religious place this is probably the only place that wasn't uh, abandoned entirely however uh, there was a great huge civilization that surrounded it that that totally kind of just bailed on the whole area so the ancient capital was abandoned in 1432, and most of the temples in the area were reclaimed by the jungle, uh, but Angkor Wat was still sort of used. So just picture it like uh, 100 years after the rest of the jungle reclaims everything else. It's just this one place, this last vestige, uh, where these monks just like live in solitary confinement. It's like the source of every Hollywood story that they'd love to have about this place. Right one. Okay. Uh, challenge accepted. Why not? Um, but uh, yeah, like back then, like it, it must have been amazing to just truck through the jungle and then find this one place that hasn't totally been taken over. That's surrounded by this gigantic moat and protected from the jungle. Um, so you got to look at pictures of this place. It's freaking awesome. So the original European explorers didn't think that the Khmer's could have built the temple. They assumed that it dated back the same time period as Rome and was just built by some presumably civilization that they hadn't discovered yet. Uh, but they were great explorers, and they were going to f- figure this out. Um, it really was built a thousand years later, after Rome, after all of the great things in Rome, and you know that's uh, you know fifteen hundred plus years after all the great things in Greece. So yes, uh, when when I say it rivals these things, I say it rivals it in magnificence, but not necessarily in age. Mm-hmm. Um, so the history is one that is being pieced together from evidence accumulated while. Cleaning it up and restoring the site, so that's that's where the lost civilization angle comes in. I suppose it is still something that we're piecing together um, through archaeology, and not something that we have just a written or spoken record that is directly passed down and explained throughout the years. So this place is just a, an amazing work of art. Um, you know, the artistic value is sort of. Uh, w- what got it saved in a weird, Euro- only European kind of way? So France decided to colonize the area in part uh, to take control of the ruins because it was such a, a, you know, an artistic value to the world. I guess they could use as their argument. Um, so it is really just an excuse to colonize the place. However, it did help preserve it for today. Um, so. Uh, way back when they were constructing the site, it required thousands of laborers. They they estimate there was 300,000 people that worked on this site. So the laborers moved millions of tons of sandstone into the place. Um, the quarries were, you know, up canals and stuff like that, like 30, 40, 50 kilometers away. Uh, a lot, none of this stuff was very close at all. And it I think it came from, like, a, a sacred mountain. Um, so... Basically, every single surface, all the columns, all the roofs, all, you know, the walls, everything, is carved as like a base relief, or some sort of thing carved into the wall. Like every surface that you can see there, it has like something decorative carved into it, or a story, or a picture of something. It's just incredible. Um, <clears throat> the gallery wall itself has a one or a one thousand square meter base relief. Just like on one wall. I mean, I I don't know. I'm speechless when I try to describe this place. You have to look at it. I'm not going to do it justice. I'm sorry, I'm not a poet. Um, So the temple itself is made up of 6 to 10 million blocks of sandstone. Those blocks are 1.5 tons each, on average. So the entire city of Angkor, you know, not just Angkor Wat, but everything else, used way more stone than all of the Egyptian pyramids combined. Uh, they occupy an area larger than modern-day Paris. So this was a huge civilization that uh, just kind of bailed after they were conquered in 1432. So we know, like, when and by whom and all that stuff um, they, they decided to leave, uh, but why they would leave just, like, huge places like this that must have taken such crazy labor and work to build it all, like, I have no idea. Maybe they really did believe the uh, legends, when they said that, like, oh, it was built in a day by this magnificent person. Like, oh, it was just built in a day, we can build another one some other place. <laughs> um, so today, Anger Wat, it's got a very strong legacy. It's featured on the national flag of Cambodia, and that goes all the way back to 1863, and it is a source of national pride. Um, and why not? The place is awesome. Uh, so it's credited as being instrumental in, in, quote, the formation of the modern and gradually globalized concept of built cultural heritage. So all of these places we're talking about, basically, are more well-known to us because, you know, we discovered places like Angkor Wat and we preserved them. And, uh, you know, because of that, they sort of accept this idea of, you know, there are these cultural heritages that we don't know much about that we need to preserve, that we can learn so much about in the future. Um, That'll teach us about, like, who we all really were and, like, how civilization came about. Because really, I mean, you know, just a few of these things, once they were discovered, really changed the definition of, like, what we thought people used to do. Well,
1: that's very well put. I think, uh, personally, I think Angkor Wat sounds like a Game of Thrones character who's probably serving at the Wall, um, who was originally not so sure about Jon Snow, but now has become a loyal follower of his. As and long he's, as he's better than Ollie. He's sly, but good with a sword, you know? I
0: believe Angkor Wat is also a thrash metal band.
1: Oh, well, that makes sense. I mean, if you're going to have a thrash metal band, it's a good thing to be named after.
0: Sure, sure. So do you think it's important for sites like this to become a tourist destination, to preserve it? Um, you know, is, is it necessary now? Like, does it have to be something like a tourist destination?
1: Well, if a, if a site like this is not a tourist destination, that means that there's not any money going to it unless it comes from the government, Correct.
0: Or private funding.
1: So unless someone just decides that it's very important and needs to put some money into it, uh, which might be the case, but never as much as uh, the tourism would reflect. Because if you have this as a tourist destination, that means that it has to continue to look really well, really good, uh, in order for the tourists to keep coming. So right. uh, to answer your question, I think, yes, it is necessary for a large thing that takes a lot of upkeep to be a tourist destination in order to be kept up because there's, you can't count on Private funding can't count on government funding, and both of those are probably not going to give as much money as the tourists would bring in.
0: I I I agree with you. I think that these things need to be tourist destinations. I mean, maybe ecotourism is going to wreck things, but it also is at least trying to save things. So, what do you suppose inspired um, you know the ancient rulers to construct these freaking places that they couldn't possibly hope to, like, keep up with. Well, that's easy. That's easy? Power, right?
1: Yeah. It, in order to be, a, a like, a supreme ruler of a society, and that's what most of these kinds of societies had at that time, um, you have to have a very large ego, and to go along with that is all sorts of construction and manpower to go into things that um, that have your picture on it or are built... Um, inspired by you or because of you or for you in some capacity. So uh, there's no limit, really. Uh, the, the reason that the pyramids were built in the first place was for, for burial grounds for the, you know, um, for the, uh, what the do you pharaohs. call it? The pharaohs. Uh, the so re- they
0: would build them bigger if they could?
1: Of course. Everything will always be bigger.
0: I'm interested to see the next, the bigger Angor Wat.
1: Well, it, and. <laughs> And this this podcast uh, is preserved for posterity. Uh, but imagine if, uh, being that it's July 2016, um, imagine if uh, Donald Trump becomes the president and then builds a bigger White House.
0: It would be a skyscraper White House. It would be. It would have his name on it, too.
1: Well... Uh, these are the sorts of things Like whenever you have a ruler with a big ego They're just going to try to build things As big as they possibly can That's what's going to happen Not not about the United States just, uh, You've got
0: me scared for the United States now Dave
1: Well I, you know big industry is not a bad thing You can look at everything by with two angles
0: Someone will be doing a podcast in 500 years About the lost civilization of America
1: Well if that happens like It all
0: went away when that one guy got elected
1: If that happens this is not the catalyst of that it's been happening for a while.
0: No, I just think that you've pointed out the catalyst. No. I don't we th- aren't the catalyst. I
1: don't think so. And
0: that one thing isn't the catalyst either.
1: I hope our podcast is not the catalyst for the end of uh, United States society.
0: You know, that would make us famous. <laughs> that would make it a bigger podcast.
1: Yeah, but doesn't that make sense to you? The, the ego is what happens. That's that's what creates the large uh, uh, the buildings and, and everything in gold and everything in diamonds. Right
0: and To be like a crazy leader they've already you know we've determined in modern days that you're probably going to be a sociopath and those people don't care about practicality you know and long term thinking they, they're they just like I want it to be me forever sure But <laughs> I mean you know the pyramids were built and they lasted man and they've been there for a long time the Sphinx and all that sort of stuff so like people look to that and say you know I can make something that's there forever
1: well, yes, and and that's the that's the ultimate idea is is what I'm trying to impress is that um, everybody wants something that lasts beyond their their life on Earth. It's Okay,
0: America's already done that. So we have Mount Rushmore.
1: Well, each each ruler, each person that has enough power to construct something, anything wants to construct it. Right. It would be stupid not to to have a whole bunch of money and then not want to do anything. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I mean, I don't know if I have an example, but. That person should not be allowed to have that money because he's not doing anything with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, very cool. And all these things uh, are things that there are uh, some books and documentaries on that you can go out and, and search uh, for. And at the very least, there are Lost Civilization um, you know, series on History Channel or Discovery Channel uh, before they started uh, just putting out reality shows. They did have some programming on actual destinations and, uh, and historical things.
0: Yeah, and, um, yeah, I mean, if you go to the Angkor Wat website, they have a link to the documentary about Angkor Wat. It, it was it was interesting.
1: Is that the metal band you're referring to?
0: Or not Angkor Wat. It was uh, Gobekli Tepe.
1: Yeah, the Angkor Wat website. I don't
0: think I screwed up Gobekli Tepe once tonight, and I'm very proud of myself because <laughs> I really haven't ever pronounced it correctly.
1: Well, let's talk about one last uh, lost civilization, and that is called Atlantis, as Jason... Uh, was talking uh, to just privately to uh, him and I before the show started. Um, I think we both think that this isn't something that actually exists. However, there are there are theories and and things that could possibly make sense. Uh, if, for example, by Atlantis, he's talking about a different place or a separate place or taking a place that he knows and sort of uh, 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 changing that a little bit. You know, poetic license. Yeah. Uh, and and before you guys, uh, before you guys. Don't know who I'm talking about when I say him. Well, let me tell you the story of Atlantis. So if you're not familiar It's a lost island Subcontinent, so it's you know something like Australia um, But they're thinking it's a little bit smaller um, at least in in fiction land. It's somewhere um, In the ocean that is looked at as an advanced society where um, a lot of people get along together and there isn't war And there's wisdom there, but no one can find it, or it's gone at this point. Um, This particular legend uh, came about because Atlantis first appeared, as far as we can tell, by Plato in one of his dialogues, actually two of his dialogues, um, Timaeus and Critias. Uh, They were both written about 330 BC. So it's interesting when you you look at the timelines of what we've already discussed and what we're discussing now. Um the uh oh of course and if you guys haven't heard the beginning of the podcast we we did clarify the difference between BC and BCE and I did non-committally sort of agree to drink w- if I made a mistake so
0: very non-committally but I'll I'll drink with you cheers
1: mm. So I'm drinking a hopnosh which is a tangerine IPA and I like uh tangerines a lot so this is really nice
0: Yeah this is delicious the-
1: very flavored, though. It almost tastes like a like an orange juice. Uh, well, I guess tangerine this is from, juice. This
0: is from Salt Lake City.
1: Yes, Salt Lake. So what I was saying is uh, uh, about 400 BC is when several of the things that we talked about happened, you know, uh, several different civilizations. So a lot of these things share sort of a similar uh, time period with the exception, I think, of, uh, of Anchor Watt, right? Um,
0: well, really... Um the the Anasazi left their area around the same time as the Cahokians were peaking, uh, which was right about the same time that they were building Angkor Wat.
1: Yeah. Okay, well then they all they all come together. And it, it
0: is it is fun how that how that kinda happens.
1: Yeah. So uh what Atlantis is uh, from what we look at it from popular fables and stories and literary references, etc. now, I described as the peaceful utopia um, in the dialogues that Plato wrote originally, um, the the story was different. So, uh, summarized by a professor of archaeology, and I quote, "...a technologically sophisticated but morally bankrupt evil empire. <laughs> it, Atlantis attempts world domination by force, and the only thing standing in its way is a relatively small group of spiritually pure, morally principled, and incorruptible people who are the ancient Athenians." Overcoming overwhelming odds, the Athenians are able to defeat their far more powerful adversary simply through the force of their spirit. And so, Plato's Atlantean dialogues are basically... The um, Avengers? Are basically, <laughs> are basically Star Wars.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, more specifically.
1: Well, that story's been around for a long time, yeah. but, I mean, well, if, if people think that George Lucas wrote a, an original script uh, with no, like, outside tropes, he's, they're incorrect, because... All of these stories have been around since the days of Plato and Homer.
0: The original, like, people who actually wrote their stories down.
1: And probably before them, people that were telling them, because uh, as writers know, everybody sort of plagiarizes a little bit. It's just what you do with that inspiration. Even
0: the very first writer plagiarized somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: But many people over the centuries have claimed there must be some truth to this, right? Uh, Because it was written and because it was talked about... And so there are experts um, that that have located the lost continents across the world um, all over the place. But Plato says it's in one specific spot. And he says, For the ocean there was at that time navigable. For in front of the mouth, which you Greeks call, as you say, the Pillars of Heracles, there lay an island which was larger than Libya and Asia together. So he's saying it lies in the Atlantic Ocean beyond the Pillars of Hercules, in quotes, which is the Strait of Gibraltar. Right. So that's the mouth of the Mediterranean.
0: So basically out in the Atlantic somewhere. Right. And Libya and Asia, Libya being part of Africa and Asia being Asia Minor or Turkey, not all of Asia as we know it today.
1: Right. So theories, just to be quick about it, uh, like we said, it's sort of this mid-Atlantic continent or one closer to the, uh, the mouth of the... Mediterranean that suddenly sunk into the ocean and its secrets were lost, etc. Well, it's been really difficult to find anything. In fact, nobody has found anything yet. So we have to assume if that's true, then uh, it sank really deep, man. Uh, two Atlantis was swallowed up by the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, there's certainly the possibility of this if the Bermuda Triangle were a thing. And man, I've watched a lot of these these weird old shows about like ships and planes and things disappearing in there. Um, but it, it's much more likely that things are disappearing in the Bermuda Triangle, not because of some craziness that's going on with that area, but because it's just kind of a remote area where like, they're it's far away from things. It's easy get lost, and, yeah, and the weather gets bad. So it just makes more sense, right? Uh, not to, uh, to count out aliens, but, you know, I'm counting out aliens. Uh, Atlantis was Antarctica, is another theory. So they're saying that Antarctica was basically much more... Uh, temperate and then, over a period of thousands and hundreds of thousands and uh, millions of of years or whatever the uh, the crust shifted. But in order for that to be something that existed um, you know it, that that Plato could write about, it would have to have been something fairly recent so to think that like the crust shifts and Antarctica suddenly moves really far north is is something that 's hard for scientists to even, you know, touch. That's a tough one. Yeah. Um, the story of Atlantis was a mythical retelling of the Black Sea Flood. So this is kind of on the idea of what I was saying earlier, that, that Atlantis could be talking about something else, and then sort of poetic license was used to mold it into a story. So this would uh, be talking about the... That makes a lot of sense to me. Right. Uh, talking about the Black Sea Flood, which uh, it was taking a whole bunch of civilizations and basically just destroying them completely because the flood was so intense and huge, and this is uh, a historical event that actually occurred. So there could have been this area that encompassed this ideal, for example, that Plato was enamored by, and then uh, he just took that and turned it into something else to use as a fictional retelling of an event. Um, And sort of like that, too, is the possibility that it could be the story of the Minoan civilization, which was in the Greek islands, um, and so that is uh, talking about uh, the, the Minoans who built all these great things, you know, blah blah blah, but they suddenly disappeared from history. So it's it's kind of another um, mystery along the lines of what we were talking about earlier that it could be a volcano, it could be an earthquake, it could be. Um, a it could be a lot of things it could be feud and famine and, and whatever that displace yeah. the society yeah. but the fact that that there's these civilizations that are there and then not there um within the uh, the annals of of non-recorded history pre-history uh anybody could have um taken that and and used it and created something from it
0: right and it and to me it seems like what Plato most likely did is um as an expert, right, is that he just sort of drew from the past, drew from what he knew of all these different places, and kind of gave a warning tale, yeah, of what could happen if, like, you let a civilization run rampant, it'll destroy itself.
1: True, uh, but but what I think a lot of historians are trying to actually find out is 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 this based on actual uh, history or a place? Uh, because if it is, then that means that Plato kind of probably held it in uh, in high regard. Um, Because this was a place of of a lot of intelligence, even though it did uh, rescind into the depths and and negatives of human morality. But you're right, Plato being a philosopher um, and storyteller is going to have some kind of a moral and a a fictional tale is not outside of him. Right. the reason why I think a lot of people do believe that Atlantis could be something that's true is that a lot of the things that Plato wrote were also historical uh documents.
0: Right. Because he's a historian, like it lends more credence to it. For sure. I, I could see that, but it's not like he would only write historical things.
1: Right. So number six then obviously probably the most likely to those people that are uh, you know, of this world and sound mind and intelligence. Uh, think that it doesn't exist at all. Now, whether or not it it does allude to or refer to in some way um, an actual civilization from history, and I I would tend to believe it would because it's difficult to make up things entirely. Even some of the best fantasy writers still base cities upon real cities. Um, So it could just be um, a a totally fictionalized thing, which actually until the... uh, until the... Uh, late 19th century, no one really thought that Atlantis was a place. And then this guy, Ignatius Donnelly, just said, like, yeah, it probably is, though. And then there was a, <laughs> there was a movement born out of that. And then
0: they decided to try and find it. Right.
1: <laughs> so I, I love it. I love the idea that there could be this crazy utopian civilization that was just destroyed or disappeared completely. Because uh, it makes sense on this earth, with all the craziness that's happening, that this utopian society, if that's what it was, um, at least popularized in the 19th century version, um, would either just take off, you know, along with the dolphins and, and say...
0: <laughs> so long and thanks for all the fish.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or it would be plummeted to its doom because, of course, nothing that good can survive. So <laughs> it's just one or the other. The point is it's not here. Um, And so I guess what what Plato was talking about originally in his work of fiction or uh, historical documentation or whatever it was um, is still holding true that a place like that, um, whether he described it as morally bankrupt or whether we describe it as a utopian society, uh, it still um, doesn't deserve to exist one way or another. (laughs) All right. Well, fair enough. So you want to send us out
0: this evening? I'd love to, but at some point tonight, the music just stopped working. Oh, no, we don't need
1: the music. I was just going to talk about the site and uh, you know send send our viewers out.
0: Well, you can, of course, find us here at uh, www.drink5.com. You can uh, check us out on Twitter at Drink5. Go to facebook.com slash drink5network. We will be back talking about fantasy football very soon i don't know if we've determined exactly when we're going to start that up but expect to see that in the next week or two um and we will hit lots of fantasy football throughout the year um i'm very excited for the fantasy football season uh dave are you
1: Sure. Yep, absolutely. And for those of you who are listening just to the Retro Spectacle series, please go back and listen to those as well on iTunes, Drink 5 Network, or Stitcher. You can look us up. And, of course, on drink5.com, we carry all of the podcasts that we've done. So we've done uh, uh, 19 that you haven't heard before this, uh, depending on where you are in your timeline. I'm sorry I've been watching a lot of science fiction TV during the day lately. So uh, <laughs> I, will, uh, I will see you guys later. And, uh, Jason, as always, cheers, buddy yeah